Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You're listening to episode 30 of Kicking the Kariaki with me, Elena Guthrie. This is the original intersectional feminist podcast that aims to challenge and subvert the norm by providing a platform to voices, stories and narratives ignored by the mainstream. If you're new around here, let me break it down a little. This is a safe space that's all about acknowledging your privilege and space within society and about doing what we can, when we can, to be allies to not only our community, but also communities that we're not necessarily a part of. We take a topic and explore the experiences of different voices and identities on that topic. So right now we are in the thick of navigating reproductive health. So far, we've chatted abortion in the UK from both the past and present and the impact of austerity and politics on our sexual health services. If you haven't listened to those or any of our episodes before, go and download them right after you've listened to this one. Thank you so much to everybody that gets in contact with me. That really means the world to me. You can follow us on Twitter at Kikariaki. Drop us an email, kickinthekariaki at gmail.com or you can follow our brand new Instagram account at Kikariaki. For this episode, we are going to be delving into the world of contraception, but more importantly, decolonizing contraception, which is such an important topic uh, and one that I'd never really thought of until I saw my next guest talking about it online, doing workshops on it. I'm so excited for you to hear this episode. So let's meet Annabelle. Hi, I'm Annabelle Shomimo. I'm a 28-year-old cis black woman of Nigerian descent. I'm a community sexual reproductive health doctor. I studied in London. I'm currently working in Leicester in the East Midlands. I started decolonising contraception with other black and people of colour colleagues who work in sexual and reproductive health to start discussing decolonisation within sexual reproductive health. I think importantly also, I had spinal surgery when I was about 14, my scoliosis, and my doctor did a really good job, but I've always suffered with back pain since then, and I think that's been quite integral to shaping my view and shaping some of my ideas. I firmly believe that good health is key and is a fundamental human right and really important that we fight for optimising these things. Thank you very much for joining me. I'm super excited to have a chat with you today because I have been avidly following everything that you do on Twitter with decolonising contraception. And I think it is such an interesting topic. The everyday person and the everyday young person accessing contraception and thinking about their sexual health doesn't have 
any grasp really about the history of this. Why and how did you get into this? Firstly, I just want to say that it's really flattering that you've been reading the things that I've been writing and um, putting out there because I think with any anything like that, specifically if it's underexplored, you get really nervous about how it's going to be received or if people are even going to be interested in that subject matter. So it's really great to hear that. One of the things that I found is how much race and reproductive health are connected in terms of like our history of contraception and like I said the everyday person you know the everyday young person accessing you know going to get the pill or using condoms has no idea the history of where this has come from and it's really a history of not just preventing pregnancy but we're talking population control forced sterilization torture can you give us a little bit of the historical context surrounding some of this yeah, so I think the, the first thing you raised is really interesting because it's not just sexual reproductive health. So in terms of when we think about colonisation and, and health across medicine, really, colonisation has really played quite a strong influence. So when you look at the origins of anthropology, that was very much part of the colonisation process and going to different parts of the empire and examining different people to prove or disprove racial theories of superiority and um, kind of form the bedrock of, of the eugenics movement. And then if you look at sexual reproductive health and sex and reproduction obviously it's such an essential part of human life it's how new lives are formed and because of that reason it's a way of controlling populations when you look at at war it's often used as a tool of oppression and the most widely i think appreciated example within a modern context is eugenics movement in Nazi Germany where sterilization was used on Jews and other populations to oppress this group of people. But what I don't think people keep on discussing is other examples and also interrogating whether we are still engaging in similar practices now. Mm. So you picked up on a few examples there and um, some of the things that I think we need to still keep in, in interrogating is I think one of the articles I wrote started off and discussed J. Marion Sims and um, he in gynaecology is seen as the the godfather and founder of kind of gynaecology and discovered loads of things and if you go into medical museums there's exhibitions dedicated to him but what until recently wasn't really explored or appreciated is how he acquired his information and often that was through experimenting and operating on african-american women without their consent at times without anesthetic But yet he has an instrument named after him, which is the sim speculum. And that is something that most gynecologists or people working in sexual health will often use every day or every other day. And we call it the sim speculum. And what does it mean for me as a black woman to have to use something called the sim speculum on other black women every day? And I think it's something that people don't really think about. It's just fine. It's there where we've got this instrument named after this person but actually did really terrible things and then outside those kind of practical things we have the issue of unethical medical research that's been conducted I think 
more so it's become more prevalent for people to know about the Tuskegee trials. But for people that don't know, the Tuskegee trials were trials that were conducted in the 1930s on African-American men to understand the complications of syphilis. The men didn't really know why they were in the trial. They weren't consented properly. And even after we knew that penicillin could treat syphilis, lots of these men weren't treated and developed complications. And in some cases, fatal complications of syphilis. And although more recently people have discussed these things, it's still not widely known. I think the the average um, sexual health doctor doesn't really know these things necessarily or know how they've acquired their information. And I think that sometimes puts us at a, a bit of a risk of we need to know that sometimes medicine has been complicit in these things. So when we look at contraception, the most commonly used method of contraception for a lot of Western women is the oral contraceptive pill. And it's seen as this liberating thing. But the way we got to the contraceptive pill was through US researchers experimenting on colonised Puerto Rican women who didn't necessarily know what they were being given, experienced side effects, and we suspect a few deaths until we arrived at a, a, a reasonably safe version of the con- oral contraceptive pill, which was released in the, the US. And it's always marketed as this really liberating thing. And it, it has been. And I think it, in many ways, changed the game for a lot of women. But how did we arrive at that point? Through oppressing another group of women. And where have they been in this narrative? Nowhere to be seen for a, a really long time. And then the last thing I think is important to raise in relation to colonisation is sexuality mm-hmm. and gender roles and how that's been been affected across different populations. And the example that I often use is the Hijra community, which is a, essentially the closest community to trans community in South Asia. And pre-colonial times, they existed, they were much more revered and celebrated in Hindu culture. And then through the process of colonisation, colonial law outlawed their existence. They became a marginalised population. They're still marginalised, often forced into sex work and have a very high level of STIs and HIV now. And these colonial laws within the last few years have been reversed. But that community is still dealing with the marginalisation that experienced all throughout that time. And then we have other things such as the introduction of um, criminalisation of homosexuality by the British Empire across its colonies. And some of those laws are still in place today. So we have this weird situation where actually some of these countries that didn't have laws outlawing homosexuality before colonial times have them now and are seen as being backwards. But actually, that wasn't something that was embedded within the culture before colonial times. So I don't think that colonisation answers all these questions about sexual reproductive health. But I do think that sometimes we don't even bother to look at the influences and impacts that that it's had on different populations and ask how it's still impacting certain populations. And I think we need to interrogate these things more because there are questions that we often have in terms of researchers say 
it's really difficult to recruit from certain communities if you want to research contraception or STIs or certain things. And I think sometimes communities are really, uh, some of these communities are really wary. People of colour can be really wary about medical medical research and what we're trying to obtain. And sometimes I think, why should they want to help us or help you even? I think these are some of the issues that we need to unpack, really. Yes, I don't think a decolonial framework necessarily answers all the questions. But I think there are a lot of questions around it that we haven't asked or wanted to engage with before. And I think we need to stop burying our heads in the sand and start to think about it. That leads me on to my next question of what has been the knock-on effect of this? You know, in the 21st century, in 2019, what is the landscape right now? Some of the things I have mentioned already of some communities still experiencing marginalisation and oppression because of colonial laws or ideologies that are still, are still prevalent. Mm. I think when you look at sexual health across the board in the UK context. A lot of previously colonised populations or people of colour, black populations experience massive health disparities. This is an aspect that we don't really like engaging with at all. And I think it is a doorway into having some of these other conversations about the stigma and the taboo and the, the myths that are really prevalent in certain communities. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Yes. I want to just point out that when learning about this in particular the research or the history of gynecology and you know the experimentation on african-american women you know it's torture and it's brutal and i think that was one thing that really shocked me and then also the history of the contraceptive pill and how i think i read somewhere that as much as up to a third of the women being sterile from these experiments and i just think that as a woman myself and as somebody who like reclaimed her body for herself and the idea of that just feels extremely violating and i think it's probably one of the worst things that somebody can do to your body as a woman i think what you're doing with telling this history is absolutely essential 
Let's talk a little bit about how this intersects with some different identities today, you know, in terms of like class and race. Is it still an issue? Is race still an issue with contraception, sexual, reproductive health services today? Firstly, I just want to pick up on a few points you said that, yeah, it does is one of those things that when you read about it and it does really, some of it makes you feel really uncomfortable. And I think that's why people don't want to sometimes engage with some of these things that have happened before. But I think it is so important so we can interrogate some of our current practice and ask ourselves whether some things we do are, are neo-colonial and how we can how we can we can do better. The other thing is to pick up on is that my examples didn't directly draw on this, but men, trans community, LGBTI community have all fought and still experience forced sterilization and things uh, across across the board, uh, part of petition. In India, a lot of men were forcibly sterilized. So in terms of your, your question and how important some of these issues are in terms of sexual reproductive health services today. Mm. When you look in a UK context, we still have these massive disparities. So, for example, 31% of women accessing HIV services are black African women and 58% of those women experienced a late diagnosis. And if you have a late diagnosis, you can have more complications from HIV potentially if you go on treatment late. We know that young black people are almost 10 times more likely to contract things like gonorrhea. When it comes to contraception and reproductive health, black women have the highest rates of repeat emergency contraception use and abortion compared to their white counterparts. Bangladeshi women experience very high rates of unplanned pregnancy. If you're having unplanned pregnancies, then it means that you might not have taken folic acid to assist in preventing things like spina bifida. You have worse outcomes potentially for mother and baby. If your pregnancies aren't planned properly, we know that men of colour, that MSM, MSM means men who have sex with men, struggle to access sexual health services compared to their white counterparts. The Roman gypsy population experienced really high rates to maternal mortality and morbidity. And I could go on and on and on and on about this in terms of different populations experiencing these really high disparities in sexual reproductive health services and STIs and contraception access and things. And all of these communities need to be examined on an individual basis. I think this is a one way of looking at how these things have affected these populations in terms of driving health disparities and often colonisation links quite heavily with migration, which reinforces some of these issues. So if a a population is colonised, often they have to flee or they're being oppressed and then they have to go somewhere else. And that upheaval means, you know, things like poverty and socioeconomic issues and sometimes lack of education because of lack of access. So it's often compounded with a multitude of things and not everything will fit neatly into a decolonial framework but it's one way of looking at some of these issues and the populations that are affected and thinking how we can start to discuss some of these things. Why are people of colour disproportionately affected? It's very multifactorial and I think one thing that often happens is you get people of colour or BME communities or it's all lumped together as one and people don't really disaggregate or even sometimes collect the data separately so you can't even start to think about those reasons separately. However there are some 
things that are similar across the board that can create and compound these issues. So we know that, for example, with um, women of colour, they experience high levels, sometimes gender-based violence. There may be less education there. There's a lack of specific resources to meet their needs in terms of culturally, which means that they can't access services because they don't think anyone there understands their needs or understands them. When we look at sexual health in terms of navigating relationships and how relationships are built, we know that in West African cultures, for example, there may be more polygamy. Women may be less able to negotiate things like condom use, which means that then there's an increased risk of STI and HIV transmission. As I mentioned before, there's that interplay between socioeconomic disadvantage and class. Often these populations obviously experiencing low education and socioeconomic disadvantage, which then fuels other issues and makes them more difficult to deal with. People from such communities have lots of layers to their identity, which make it more and more difficult to deal with some of these problems or make some of these issues amplified. And this is what sometimes is missing from the conversation. You touched a little bit on women of colour being diagnosed later than their white counterparts for things like HIV. But then on top of that, once they are diagnosed, it's harder to access treatment like pre-exposure prophylaxis. Why is there such a barrier with this? Why are there still barriers with accessing treatment? There's a few reasons. Some of it's internal. So you have internal community stigma and taboo about being diagnosed with HIV and what that means. And the lack of understanding that now we know that if you access treatment early and your viral load is undetectable, then you're untransmissible and you can have a normal life expectancy better than normal. However, if HIV isn't spoken about and people are taking their medications and things in secret, then that limits how people can access services because they can't be open about what they need and they don't tell their partners, which then obviously makes sometimes it, it makes it more likely likely that people will transmit the virus. Then we have the intersection of all the other things I've discussed. So sometimes these communities have other things like migration problems, which makes their, their lifestyles more erratic. They're moving from place to place. It's difficult to be on treatment if you are not accessing services regularly um, and you are not collecting your prescriptions regularly. Some of these communities find it difficult to relate to their health professionals. We still know that in terms of medicine, there is still not enough BME people within the medical profession. This means that our services are not necessarily reflective of the communities we serve. We don't have access to interpreters in the way that we wish to have access to interpreters, which means that consultations and accessing services can be really fraught for some people and we don't necessarily have the advocacy support to services that is required. There are so there are so many reasons to why um, accessing HIV services is particularly difficult for these people and why they don't get the information that they require as early as they require. They can't advocate for themselves in relation to things like needing PEP or PrEP. Just for your listeners, PEP is post-exposure prophylaxis. Mm. So afterwards, when somebody thinks that they have been exposed to HIV and then there's pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is a newer thing. We know it to be effective through the PROUD study and we know it can prevent transmission if taken regularly. So in particular, 
to African women, it, it might be important for them to take it if they don't know their partner might have other partners and things like that. So these are really important things that researchers developed and it's really important that this population have access to. How can we be better allies to this history and your work? Firstly, I think you are already doing it in part because you've allowed me to speak about this work, which I'm really grateful for. And I think it's about engaging with people that are talking about some of these issues and having useful discussions that other people can hear and just educating yourself about the history and understanding the history that's happened before. So for example, you can come to some of our events and then do some more reading around the subject. On our website, we have a reading list, which I'm currently keep adding to about work that I think link and are helpful for understanding some of these things and creating practical solutions. I think fundamentally understanding and educating yourself builds empathy and empathy leads to better practice this podcast and everything is part of it really good thank you I'm, I'm happy to hear that and just expanding on that there's a quote in one of your articles that I thought really struck a chord with me and you say we owe a lot to our ancestors who unknowingly sacrificed their fertility so that we could have reproductive freedom it's time for all of us to better understand the harmful history of reproductive medicine and start changing the narrative contraception is something that happens to you it's something that was made for you and you have the right to choose whether or not to use it and I think that that sums up perfectly what you're trying to do so thank you for doing that thank you for writing about it and thank you for you know running your workshops and for and for putting the effort in to educate everyone especially for taking the time today to talk to me about it I really appreciate it thanks a lot and so my one final question what are you working on this is a platform for you to platform anything that you're working on or anything that decolonizing contraception is working on so the floor is yours our panels are open to everybody some of our workshops we're trying to create safe spaces so people feel able to open up Amazing. Annabelle, thank you so much for being a guest today. Thank you so much for having me and giving me the opportunity to discuss something that I feel so passionately about. And I just really want more people to start considering these things. And I'm just so interested to also hear about whether people know more examples or have other questions from what I've raised today. So yeah, please check out our Twitter, my Twitter and look on the website and feel free to email me. Thank you so much to Annabelle, Dr. Annabelle, um, for taking on quite a lot of intellectual and emotional labour there, educating, you know, not just me, but all of us uh, listening to that. I'm very grateful. As ever, it shows that in the UK, there is still a legacy of racism, slavery, colonialism that is alive and well within parts of our society. And that, you know, one of the things that we can do is just to acknowledge it. You know, how, how are we ever supposed to heal from these things if we don't acknowledge that it happened? we're still feeling the after effects the ripple effects of it today in 2019 so i encourage everyone along with myself to to do your homework to listen to educate yourself and give 
these stories and narratives, the acknowledgement and the history and the time that they deserve. I know that we're not personally responsible for things that happened before us, but we do benefit from it in a variety of ways. So therefore, it is our responsibility to break it down, to acknowledge it, to try and dismantle it where we can. So we do have the power to make sure that these stories and these histories aren't forgotten and that they're told with justice and compassion and truthfulness. So with that in mind, don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. It really does help us climb up the podcast ladder and it means that we can do more topics and reach more guests and make more really, really important content. As always, let me know what you think. Hit me up on Twitter at KitKariaki. Drop me an email, kickinthekariaki at gmail.com. Follow the new Instagram account at KitKariaki and I will see you very soon. Thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.